All right, good evening, everyone. I know that people are still coming in, but Emirat Hashem will uh, we'll get started a little bit. I want to begin tonight by, um, by thanking our sponsors for tonight's shir, to thank Robin Schaefer for dedicating the shir tonight in memory of her beloved husband, Usher Herschel Ben Avram Shmuel, on the occasion of his second yard site. We thank Pam and Neil Weissman for dedicating the shir tonight in memory of their dear father, Sabah Cantor, Royal Rockman Zichron Livracha, Dasi Lefkowitz for sponsorship, Adam and Allison Steinmetz, in honor of being able to celebrate this Yom Tov of Shavuos together in person, and Moshe and Devorah Wardasham with gratitude to Hashem for the gifts he gives us, our children, our grandchildren on a daily basis. We thank all of our sponsors. We hope that in the merit of our Tamu Torah, all of the Neshamas will have an Aliyah and the family Zainachama. And of course, it goes without saying that we dedicate our learning tonight in the zechus of our brothers and sisters in Eretz Yisrael, that it's overwhelming to see that over the course of the last day, close to 800 missiles have been launched against various cities, resulting so far in three deaths, unfortunately, and scores of individuals who are injured. As we give this year tonight, rockets rain down on Tel Aviv, and it's hard to, well, the airport was closed today, and it's an overwhelming situation. You know, I was saying to someone before, sometimes it feels... You know, when you're part of Am Yisrael, you're just waiting to catch your breath. So we come off Corona, and Corona ends, we come to Meron. And then after the tragedy of Meron, we now find this incredible upheaval, feeling like we are on the brink of war. 5,000 reservists called up today, and we have to daven. You know, it's true, we're 6,000 miles away. And it's true that currently we are living in the Galos. But that does not excuse us from doing our part. So there are many in Eretz Yisrael who are doing their part by fighting the battles, learning the Torah there, davening there. And we have an obligation to daven as well, to learn as well, and to increase our tzedakah, and to increase our chesed, and to increase our maizim tovim. No one does tzaras like Klal Yisrael. And no one answers. It's incredible. We, we, we know how to become the best version of ourselves in times of acute danger and in times of acute need and in times of incredible catastrophe. To keep all of that goodness and beauty and holiness with us in times of peace as well. But I would just urge all of us, especially tonight is Rosh Chodesh. Every Rosh Chodesh, you know, we say, Rashi Chadoshim La'amchona Sata. It's Rashi Tevos of Rachel. That, that Yom Tov of Rosh Chodesh is Yom Tov of Rachel Imenu. Rosh Chodesh in general has a special relationship to women. And there's an incredible opportunity of his tchachos. Every Rosh Chodesh brings renewal. And every Rosh Chodesh brings an opportunity to remake ourselves. And every Rosh Chodesh brings the opportunity to do this month the things that we promised we were going to do last month. And the truth is, the things that we promised we were going to do last month are often the things that we promised we were going to do the month before. And the month before that... When we find ourselves in overwhelming times and in difficult situations, it behooves us to push ourselves a little bit more, to daven a bit more, to do a bit more chesed, to reconcile a bit more, to be a bit more generous, whether it's with our money or our time or our resources, but to do whatever we can to be able to provide a Yeshua for Klaal Yisrael. So we hope that in the merit of our Talmud Torah, in the merit of coming out, and I apologize for the late start of, of, of this year. I, I give you such incredible credit coming out 8.45. I'm sorry, because of the pandemic, we've redone our, I hope you like what we've done with the place. Um, but we have no space. We have no space. We have one room, pretty much, one big area, which has to be used for everything from Mincham Arif to women Shi'urim. So thank you very much for accommodating the late start. But in the schus 
of the Talmud Torah that is occurring here tonight. Should protect our brothers and sisters. And Amir Tashem should usher in a period of Yeshua, Nechama for now and for all eternity. So we have the great Zuchus tonight to be able to delve a little bit into Megillas Rus. And Megillas Rus is a fascinating story. The truth is, to appreciate Megillas Rus, we need a little bit of introduction, which is Shavuos is an interesting dynamic. Because on one hand, Shavuos is a yomtiv of the collective. Remember, again, we celebrate on Shavuos Matan Torah, Sinaitic revelation, that we sit at Har Sinai and we receive the Torah together as a people. And the Torah says, Vayichan Sham Yisrael Neget Hahar. And if you translate that, Vayichan, he camped opposite the mountain. It uses a singular wording, calls Klal Yisrael, he camped. And Rashi says, why doesn't it say Vayachanu? They camped opposite the mountain. And Rashi says something so beautiful. Ki ishechod belevechod. Because when we receive the Torah, we see the Torah like one people with one heart. So one of my Rebbeim always remarked, it doesn't say one people with one opinion because that never happened, that never will happen. And in fact, again, it's not our goal to have one opinion. The beauty of Klal Yisrael, the beauty of being part of this magnificent nation is that there are so many different opinions and there are so many different approaches and there are so many different mahalchim. Our goal is not to agree on everything, but our goal is to find a way to love each other, to coexist with one another, even with a variety of differences of opinion. So on one hand, Shavuos is the of the collective. Yet on the other hand, we read the story of Megillas Rus, the story of Rus. And Megillas Rus is the story of an individual or, or individuals. It's Boaz, it's Rus, it's Naomi, it's Elimelech, it's Machlon and Kilion, a whole bunch of individuals. And the truth is, this is a little bit of the dialectic of Shavuos. Because to be a Jew means I have two identities. I have a collective identity. Who am I? I am a part of Kalal Yisrael. That's who I am. If you ask me, if you ask me what's the greatest privilege in life, I truly feel that the greatest privilege in life is to be a member of Am Yisrael. It is the greatest zuchus to be part of this nation. Whether you're born into this nation, whether you convert into this nation, it is the greatest zuchus and we celebrate that privilege of being part of the collective nation on Shavuos. But you see, you can't just go through life being part of the collective. You also have to cultivate your own personal identity. The Jew lives with his dialectic. I'm part of a whole, but I also have to cultivate, who am I? Who am I? You know, when we begin Shemona Esrei, we say, Eloke Avram, Eloke Yitzchak, Eloke Yaakov. Because the Avos, you know, we often group the Avos together and the Imaos together. There's the patriarchs, the matriarchs. And yet we know, just from a very cursory reading of Chomish, each and every one of the Avos was so dramatically different. Yitzchak was nothing like his father. Nothing like his father. And Yaakov was nothing like his father or his grandfather. Yet we call them our avos. Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Leah. Four great women. But incredibly different and distinct from one another. Because our job as Jews is on one hand to cultivate an identity as being part of the collective. But at the same time, I have to have my own unique individuality as well. Who am I as an individual? Well, who am I? What's my unique relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu? We all have the same national relationship. We all have the same 630 mitzvahs. We all have the same Shabbos. We all have the same yamtiv. But within that collective relationship, I have to carve out something personal and unique. The Belzer Rebbe says, we say this in Az Yashir. 
we say, This is my God and I will exalt Him. The God of my Father and I will praise Him. Every Jew has these two parts. There's the God of my Father. That's communal God. And then there's my God. My God. So on Shavuos, we have Matan Torah. First day of Yom Tebas, that's the celebration of being part of the collective. Miguel Asrus is a celebration of our individuality. So what do we learn about our individuality from Miguel Asrus? So tonight, in the few minutes we have, because my wife told me since we started late, it has to be a short year. And they value Shalom Bayez above all else. So we're going to have a short year. And Mir I want to point out to you what I think is a fascinating episode of Megillah Surah. So if you take a look at number one, we're going to do a lot of these sources outside, but I just wanted to give you the source sheet because things that we don't cover in Merit Hashem and the Shir, it's a long yomtiv of Shavuos ahead of us, Shabbos and Shavuos. So in, in, parag, in, in excuse me, number one is Parag Gimel Megillah Surah. And the Megillah says, Vatomer Manami Chamosa, Biti, Halo Avaki Shlach Manoach Hashem Yitavlach. So there is a beautiful, one of the most unique things in, in Megillah Surah is the relationship between mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. A beautiful, loving, nurturing relationship. By the way, that goes both ways. It goes both ways. Naomi loves Rus like a daughter, and Rus loves Naomi like a mother. It's an incredible relationship. So Naomi says to Rus, I want you to have happiness in life. Remember again, to be very clear, Naomi is not the life of the party. She's not. Remember, she comes back to Eretz Kinan, and the first thing she does is she tells everybody, don't call me Naomi. My name's not Naomi. My name is Mara. My name is Mara. Mara means bitterness. This was Naomi's life. She lost everything. She lost her husband. She lost her two sons. She lost her wealth. She lost her standing. She had nothing in this world. Even Ros. Naomi did not want Rus to come. You know, in the beginning of the Megillah, where there's this moment where Naomi is there with Rus and Arpa, and they're following her, and she says, go back. When Naomi says, go back, she really meant go back. She did not want either of these girls to come with her for a simple reason. She had nothing to offer them. She had nothing to offer them. And not only that, think about this in just a moment. In Naomi's eyes, those girls, as wonderful as they were, and Arpa was also a special woman in her own right, reminded her of her deceased sons. Why, why are you going to come with me? What, what, what do I have to offer you? I have nothing in life to give you. So Naomi is a very heavy personality to live with. It's like living in a constant shiva home. That's what it's like living with Naomi. But yet Naomi says to Rus, I want better for you. So she goes on to go ahead and describe as follows. So if you take a look at number one, Pasuk Gimel, verse three, she tells, she, I'm sorry, Pasuk Beis, V'ato, halo boaz modatanu asher ayises narosav, hinehu zorez goren hasorim halayla. Boaz is going to be threshing his grain. He's going to be on the threshing floor of his granary tonight. V'rachatzt v'sacht v'samt simlosayich alayach v'yararta v'goren al tivadi li'ish ad koloso lechov v'lishtos. So Naomi says, Ros, here's the plan. I want you to bathe, anoint yourself with oil, put on your best dress, sneak into the granary at night, wait till everyone's gone, till Boaz eats, drinks, fall asleep. Then I want you to come out, lay down at his feet, take off his shoes, and... He will tell you what to do. 
All right, no reactions to this. Incredible. Good. It's quite a plan. That's quite a plan. Right? What is going on over here? What, what, what is Naomi telling Rus to do? Like, what's, what's, what's the plan over here? In fact, again, when you just read the psukim, it sounds illicit. It sounds like something is happening here that should not be happening. Dress up, make yourself beautiful, go in under the cover of darkness, lay down at his feet when no one else is around, take off his shoes, and he will tell you what to do. What is it exactly that Naomi is instructing Rus to do? So the Mepharshim go all over the place with this particular episode. The Malbim and others understand that this taking off of the shoes was a veiled reference to the concept of Yibo. Let's spend a few moments on this. On a biblical level, the Torah tells us about the concept that if a man dies without children, so there is a concept of Yibo, which is the surviving brother marries the widow. And the goal of that union is to produce a child. That's the goal. And ultimately, again, that child becomes known as an extension of the deceased brother. He's actually named after the deceased brother. This is the chesed that the living brother does for the deceased brother by ensuring him some level of perpetuity, by marrying the widowed sister-in-law, and ultimately, again, establishing offspring. And interesting enough, we're not going to get into from even from a halachic perspective, that child who is born, who really has no relationship to the deceased brother, inherits the deceased brother, he becomes like a son to the man who was deceased, who pre-deceased him. In biblical times, they took this concept of Yibum and they expanded it. And they expanded it into a concept called Geula. Geula means redemption. And what the laws of redemption essentially said was as follows. That even if there was no surviving brother, the closest surviving relative would marry and take care of the widow. That was the concept of Geula. So if you take a look at number two, the Malbim says as follows. Ubasa v'gilisa margalosa v'shachaft perish kiheim boshu militvoa es boaz She so-so. So the Malbim says like this. Boaz was the closest surviving relative to Naomi. Now the truth is, as the Megillah goes on, it turns out there's actually a person who's a little bit closer than Boaz. But for now, from Naomi's perspective, she assumed that Boaz was the closest surviving relative. As such, what Naomi really wanted was for Boaz to marry Rus. But everyone was embarrassed. No, no one really had the, had, the, had the kishkas to go ahead and suggest the shidduch. Because think about this shidduch for just a second, right? Rus is a Moabite convert. She's the first woman from the nation of Moab to ever convert. Her conversion was shrouded in an incredible amount of controversy. In fact, remember again, who wrote Megillas Rus? Who wrote it? Shmuel Hanavi wrote it. And why did Shmuel Hanavi write Megillas Rus? It was written to go ahead and show the genealogy of King David. Because the detractors of David HaMelech claimed he wasn't really Jewish. He wasn't really Jewish. Because his great-great-grandmother wasn't Jewish. So Shmuel Hanavi writes Megillah Asros. And this is one of the reasons we read it on Shavuos. It's because David HaMelech died on Shavuos. So we read the book of his genealogy on Shavuos. That's the entire point. So Rus is a young... First of all, she's many years Boaz's junior. That's number one. Number two, she's a convert. And a Moabite convert. And Boaz, Boaz is not just Boaz, Boaz is also known by the name of Ivtsun. He was one of the Shoftim. He was one of the judges. Boaz is one of the Gidole Hadar. 
So who exactly is going to read this Shidduch? Right? Who is going to suggest? Who's going to, who's going to pass Boaz Rus's resume exactly? Right? Wonderful goal. References? None. Background? None. Siblings? None. Parents? None. Right? Seminary? She didn't get into the best ones. You know, whatever. You know, who, who, who's going who, who's to who's go ahead and suggest this Shidduch? So the only way Naomi felt that she had a chance of potentially proposing this Shidduch was to do so covertly. So she says to Rus, go in there, dress, dress accordingly, dress beautifully, put yourself together to show Boaz that you have an interest in him and then go ahead and pull off, take off his shoes. Why? So look what the Malbim, he says, he says as follows, this is incredibly beautiful. I'm in number two paragraph, Aleph, second line. So a little bit of Kabbalah over here, quotes the Malbim, which is the soul is the most powerful part of who we are. The problem, only problem with the soul is that the soul has an inability to interact with the outside world without a physical medium, right? The soul is a spark of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but the soul needs the body in order to be able to interact with the outside world. So the Malbim says something so beautiful, quoting the Kabbalah that just as the foot needs a shoe in order to go ahead and accomplish what it wants to accomplish in this world, right? If I don't have shoes, I remember my grandmother Zichron Livracha saying that during the war, in the death marches, in the concentration camps, the most important commodity you could have were shoes. She says the human body could endure starvation, the human body could endure extreme, extreme temperature, but if you did not have shoes, you could not survive. Because the shoe enables me to get from point A to point B. So the Malbim says, what the, what the shoe is to the foot, the body is to the soul. So he says something amazing. When a man dies without children, he, the soul doesn't find rest. And in fact, the Malbim says to get a little Kabbalistic, the soul jostles around inside the widow until ultimately, again, she is able to remarry and ultimately have children, until she's able to go ahead and perform yibum. That's why, interestingly enough, the whole idea is, what happens if their brother-in-law doesn't want to perform yibum? What's the process called? Chalitza. And what happens with chalitza? It's incredible. So the widow, the widow, takes off the shoe of her brother-in-law and spits in it. Why taking off the shoe? Because what she's telling her brother-in-law is, you've deprived your deceased brother of finding menuchas hanefesh. You could give him a shoe. You could, you could give, you could provide a shoe to his foot. You could provide a body to the soul if you were to marry me and we were to produce offspring. So therefore, again, it's much more Kabbalistic, the album goes on, but he essentially says that Rus was laying down by the feet of Boaz and the removal of the shoe, I'm not, it's just not so nuanced, was, was a nuanced I, it was a nuanced allusion to you really should marry me. You really should marry me. No one's going to say anything. And remember, here's the beauty of this. Rus is not going to say a word. Naomi tells her, don't say anything. Because the truth is, if Boaz says, I'm sorry, I can't help you. At least like this, it happened in the cover of darkness. 
No one saw her come. No one will see her go. No one knows what's going on. No one, Boaz doesn't have to feel embarrassed. She doesn't have to feel embarrassed. She can go back out and they can pretend like nothing occurred. But Boaz is a smart man and he will understand when you take off his shoes that you are alluding to his obligation of Geula. His obligation ultimately again to redeem you. That's how the Malbim understands it. Again, there's a lot more in the Malbim over here, much more esoteric. But the truth is to understand the shoes, I think we have to take one step back. Which is, what's the most glaring question in this entire episode? Why is Boaz sleeping in the granary? Remember, again, Naomi tells Rus, Boaz is going to eat, he's going to drink, and he's going to sleep in the granary. Now, if Naomi knows that, if Naomi knows that, what does that mean? What does that mean? Everyone knew it. Everyone knew it. Right? Again, so this must have been a known thing that Boaz slept in the granary. Boaz is a wealthy man. Remember again, where does Boaz live? Boaz lives in a place called Beis Lechem Yehuda. This was the Beverly Hills of Eretz Yisrael. This is where the elite of the elite lived. Boaz had, Baruch Hashem, a lot of money, a lot of fame. He was highly regarded. He was the Gadol Hadar. As the Gemara says, he was Ochal al He had two tables. The tables of Ruchmios and the tables of Gashmios. He was spiritually successful and materially successful. Why is he sleeping in the granary? So here the Mepharshim go in many different directions as well. For example, if you take a look at Rashi, if you take a look at Rashi number six, Rashi says, Halayla, Shahaya Hadar Parutz Bigneva. Rashi says, and this is incredible, Rashi says that there was much thievery. Unfortunately, we see this right from the beginning of the Megillah, that there was, a, there was a decline in the morality of the generation of this time. One of the reasons why, one of the reasons why Naomi and Elimelech leave Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Kenan, at the beginning of this famine, is they did not want to support the poor. They wanted to preserve their wealth. So the notion that generational leaders picked up and left instead of helping out the most destitute gives you a little bit of a snapshot as to what's happening in this generation. So Rashi says over here, Boaz was afraid of theft. So because he was afraid of theft, he would go ahead and sleep in his granary every night so as to scare off prospective thieves. But again, the pro- or prospective thieves. But the problem with that approach is what? If Boaz is so rich and so wealthy and so influential, what could he do? Hire someone, right? We're Jews. We always have a guy, right? You always have someone who could do it, right? So, so again, I'll hire someone. I could get someone. He's got plenty of workers. He's got plenty of people. There is no need for Boaz to go ahead and sleep in the granary himself. So I want to show you something amazing that's unfolding over here. Remember, as I mentioned before, Megillah Surus was written by Shmuel Hanabi for a very specific reason which is to give the genealogy of David HaMelech, which is why the Megillah really only gives us biographical, real biographical information about one person, which is who? Rus, right? She's really the only one who we know a lot about. The other people in the Megillah are kind of support staff, so to speak, right? Support cast. So we don't know that much about them. And even though Boaz moves on to play an incredible role, Boaz's family dynamics are shrouded in a little bit of mystery. For example, there's a medrash that says in number seven, Rus Rabba, Boaz Hayashmonim. Boaz was 80 years old at the time of this story, Velo Nifgad. Now, Velo Nifgad means he did not have children. He was 80 years old and he did not yet have children. 
Okay, contrast that with a Gemara. The Gemara number eight in Seches Baba Basra says, we'll just do part of it. It says, Baaz made 120 celebrations, 120 parties for his children. And the Gemara then goes on to say that Boaz had 30 sons, and 30 daughters. Now, that might be a bit hyperbolic, but the idea that the Gemara is saying is, Boaz Baruch Hashem enjoyed a large mishpacha. So what's going on over here? The Medrash says Boaz didn't have children. The Gemara says Boaz had 60 children. Again, even if that's hyperbolic, the point the Gemara is making is Boaz Baruch Hashem is a large family. So what's happening over here? So look at the last phrase in number eight. V'kulan mesu b'chayef. All of Boaz's children predeceased him. So it could very well be that the Medrash and the Gemara are not arguing. That when the Medrash in number seven says that Boaz was 80 years old, Nifgad, means Boaz was 80 years old. And at that point in his life, he had no living children in this world. He was blessed with children. The Gemara doesn't tell us what happened, but something happened. And Rahman al-Islam, he lost all of his children. So now you have a little bit of a snapshot into Boaz. So remember again, Boaz was no stranger to loss. Remember again, the first time we're introduced to Boaz is the beginning of Perak Bey, the beginning of chapter 2 Megillas Rus. And we're introduced to him kind of what we call Derech Agov, incidentally. Remember what happens? Naomi and Rus are coming back into Canaan and they come back in and the Pasuk says, Vatehom Kol Ha'ir. Literally like the entire city gasped. And they said, Hazos Naomi? Is that Naomi? They couldn't believe their eyes. So Rashi says, what is it like? Everybody's just waiting by their windowsill to see who comes back in. What do you mean everybody's gathered? And Rashi calls the dramatic medrash that says they were all gathered. Why? For the Levi, for the funeral of Boaz's wife. So Boaz's wife passed away in the beginning of Parak Bays, amazingly enough, right as Rus comes back to Canaan. And at some time before this, Boaz's children pass away as well which gives you a dramatically different picture of Boaz. Boaz was a heartbroken man. Boaz was a man who knew dramatic loss. The loss of a life partner, the loss of children, the loss of mishpacha. So I came across a number of years ago when I was in Eretz Yisrael, I was in a swarm store and I saw a little safer a pamphlet called Tikvas Min Ma'amakim, which literally means hope from the depths, written by Rav Yaakov Meidan. Rav Yaakov Meidan is one of the Rashi Yeshiva at Yeshiva at Haratzion, Gush, in the Yeshiva of Haratzion. And he wrote, he wrote a number of essays on Megillas Rus. And in one of these essays, he goes ahead and he addresses this dynamic of Boaz. And I want to read to you one line, and then we're kind of going to zero out a little bit. He says... We'll skip to the second paragraph. It is strange that such an important man, such an exalted man, a wealthy, influential man, is sleeping all by himself in the field. Now, in the field means in the granary. Literally, again, at the edge of the pile of grain. Why doesn't he sleep in his house? Unless you think, well, maybe it was just a nice night, right? It was just a nice night outside. Boaz wanted to sleep outside. That can't be. Because from the fact that Naomi tells Rus with absolute certainty, 
Where Boaz, remember again, the plan that Naomi gives to Ros is a very precision plan, right? It requires everything to line up in a certain way. Ros, get dressed, right? Sneak in at a particular time. Don't let anyone know that you're there. Come out only at night. She knows where Boaz is going to be sleeping. Now, the fact that she knows where Boaz is going to be sleeping indicates to us that this was not episodic. It wasn't just that Boaz decided to sleep here tonight. This is where Boaz slept and everyone knew it. And Rav Medan says something absolutely amazing. Where is home? Where is home? So we know home is where your family is. Right? If a person, home is not the walls. Home is not the roof. Home is not the paintings on the wall or the furniture in the living room. What makes your home your home are the people who are there. Which is why at the end of the day, I can move homes. Okay, okay, we, we get attached to houses, that's fine. But I can move somewhere else as long as the people who complete my life are going to be there. But the moment that I have the physical structure of the home, but the people of my life are not there, it's no longer home. So Rav Meidan posits in such a profound way. Do you know why Boaz slept in the granary? Because he could not bear the pain of sleeping in his home. He could not bear the pain of going ahead and walking into a home where his wife wasn't there. He could not bear the pain of walking into a home which was once full with the beautiful voices of his children. Voices which were silenced forever. He could not close his eyes and fall asleep in a home which held so many memories and now was simply a vacant shell. He couldn't sleep there. So instead, where does he sleep? He sleeps in the field. He sleeps in the granary. Because anything is better than going into that empty home. And look at Rav Meidan's word at the end of the second paragraph. Boaz was homeless. He was a man without a home. He had an address. He had a physical home. But he couldn't bear to enter into it. Now do you understand? You see, it's incredible. You know, Rabbi Sachs, Zechot Tzadik Levracha, writes that in the world of literature, I've mentioned this many times throughout the years, in the world of literature, there are often two kinds of stories, right? There are, there's mythology and there are fairy tales, right? So remember again, what happens if you ever read a little bit of Greek mythology? Every single story in Greek mythology is the same story, which is man plans and the capricious, unpredictable gods simply go ahead and pull the rug out under, from under man. Why? Why? No rhyme or reason. They just do it because they can. And how does every single fairy tale end? And everyone lived happily ever after. Rabbi Sachs says that in Judaism, we have neither of these kinds of stories. We, have, we don't believe in mythology because we believe in the Ribono Shalolam, who is our greatest advocate. The Baruch Hu never pulls the rug out from under me. And even in those times in life where I feel like the rug has been pulled out from under me, it's only for some type of benefit, only for something objectively beneficial for me, in the long run at least. But you know what the incredibly overwhelming thing is? In Judaism, 
we also have no stories which end and everyone lived happily ever after. You look at the end of the Chumash, it's Moshe Rabbeinu's death. All he wanted was to enter into Eretz Yisrael. That's all he wanted. All he wanted, he was denied it. You remember again, we spoke about this Purim, remember our Purim share? Just nod your head. Yeah, good, excellent, good. So remember again, the Purim Shir, right? We spoke of this dynamic where we finish the Megillah. We start singing Shoshanas Yaakov. Everyone is so happy, except, except the heroine of the story, Esther Hamaka. Trapped in a marriage she did not want to be in. Trapped in a life she did not want to be in. You see, because Judaism understands that heroism often requires sacrifice. And we, our goal is not to lead happily ever after lives. Our goal is to lead lives of meaning, lives of purpose, and lives of accomplishment. And often, that comes with an incredible amount of pain. Because that's the nature of the human condition. So do you see now what's happening over here? Boaz is a broken-hearted man. Boaz is a man whose heart is shattered in a million pieces. Some of us know, some of you know here, know what it's like to go home to an empty home at night. But at least again, Baruch Hashem, there's a telephone. A person can speak to loved ones, a person can speak to children, a person can speak to friends. What does it mean every night to go into a home and there's no wife and there's no children and all there is is silence. And I'm sure everywhere you look, there's incredible memories and everywhere you look, there's a beautiful past, but there's no future. Everything you knew and everything you loved is gone. And so the only thing Boaz can bring himself to do, and remember, Boaz was a remarkably functional individual. No one, right during the day, you couldn't tell this. During the day, Boaz is out, he's judging, he's a captain of agriculture, right? He, he's doing great. But when the sun goes down and nightfall comes, he can't go back in that house. He just can't go back in. I, I, I can't do that. So I'll sleep on the hard floor of the green. I might be the richest man in Eretz Yisrael, but I can't go back inside that house. So now look what happens. Rus comes. Rus comes. And what does Rus do? She removes his shoes. Now what I want to point out is we saw the Malbim who said that the shoe removal was related to Yibum. But the truth is, this is not our first episode of shoe removal. Where's the first episode of shoe removal in Tanakh? Excellent. Moshe Rabbeinu. Number 10 on your source sheet. Kaddish Baruch Hu says, Vayar Hashem Kisar Liros. Remember again, Moshe Rabbeinu is minding his own business in Midian, tending to the sheep of his father-in-law, taking care of the flock. And suddenly, what does he see? He sees a burning bush, and the bush is not being consumed. Hasneb Ba'er, it is burning. It's not being consumed. So what happens? Moshe, Moshe. God calls out to Moshe from within the burning bush. Vayomer, and what God says to Moshe, Moshe says, I'm, I'm, I'm here. Vayomer, says to Moshe, do not come any closer. Take off your shoes. Take off your shoes. Now, the symbolism of taking off your shoes is very important. We know that Amir Tzashem, very soon, speedily in our days, we're going to have a Beis HaMikdash. And when you go up to the Beis HaMikdash, you are not allowed to wear your shoes. You can't wear shoes. You can't wear shoes. You can't take your wallet, your purse, and you can't take your walking stick. Why can't you wear shoes? On a very simple, of Hirsch explains, shoes, right? What's coming around between shoes, walking stick, and wallet 
is they all represent stability and self-sufficiency, right? My wallet is financial stability, right? I have money in my pocket, I'm good. The walking stick physically steadies me, physical stability. And the shoes, the shoes give me personalistic mobility. I have the ability to go where I want, do what I do, and accomplish what I want to accomplish. When you come before the Ribbono Shal Olam, I give up all of the trappings of self-reliance and give myself over in totality to the Ribbono Shal Olam. In front of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, there's no self-assuredness. In front of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, there's only one thing. Dependency. Dependency. So I give up all of the things which give me independence before I go up to the base of Mikdash, my wallet, my walking stick, my shoes. I yield all of those things and I become fully, wholly reliant and dependent on the Ribbon Shalom. So that's what's happening over here also. Kaddish Baruch Hu tells Moshe Rabbeinu, Shana take off your shoes. Right now you're the shepherd taking care of the flock. I want you to give up the trappings of self-reliance, your shoes, and come to me and become wholly dependent. Wholly dependent, excuse me. But the Bashant of HaKadosh says something absolutely amazing. The Bashant of says that the word Na'al means shoe, but it also means a lock, a lock or a chain. So it says the Bashant of something truly beautiful. Shal Na'alecha Me'al Raglecha doesn't just mean take off your shoes, but it means take off your chains. Unshackle yourself from the things which are holding you back. See, in that fateful encounter in the, in the desert in Midian, HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells Moshe Rabbeinu, you have so much potential. You have so much potential. But the only way you're going to actualize your potential is if you unshackle yourself from the things which are holding you back. So you say to yourself, well, what was holding back Moshe Rabbeinu? There were so many different things. Moshe Rabbeinu felt so betrayed. He felt betrayed by everyone. Think about this for just a moment. His own surrogate father, Paro, was ready to kill him. When he tried to intervene on behalf of the Jewish people, the Jewish people turned on him. Moshe Rabbeinu is a man without a nation, is a man without a country, is a man who really doesn't believe in anyone besides Sipora and Yisro. Those are the only two people in his life who afforded him any level of relationship stability. But everyone else was a backstabber. Everyone else, so I, I, I'm good. I'm good in the desert. I'm great. We all have days like that where I would like to just live in the desert by myself. Some of us have multiple days like that, right? Weeks like that, years like that, right? Where sometimes, again, just my dealings with people are so overwhelming and so toxic. Uh, I'm okay. You know, I, I don't need to be with anyone else right now. I'm good, on, I'm good by myself. David HaMelech was the same way, by the way. David HaMelech only wanted one thing. The one thing in the world David HaMelech wanted was to be left alone. That's the only thing he wanted. Leave me alone. I'm happy to be in the field shepherding the sheep. Sheep are difficult, but they don't talk back. Sheep are difficult, but they don't stab you in the back. And sheep are difficult, but they never try to pull the rug out from under you. People want to, want to be left alone. So here you have Moshe Rabbeinu wanting to be left alone. Kalish Baruch says, Moshe, you're shackling yourself to your present mediocrity. You have the ability to be something great, but you have to unshackle yourself. See what HaKadosh Baruch Hu was telling Moshe Rabbeinu is that we're all shackled by something. Some of us are shackled by toxic relationships. Some of us are shackled because we, don't, we lack self-confidence. 
Some of us are shackled because we're scared of failure and therefore we never really want to dream big. Some of us are shackled because we're just not really happy with who we are. We're all shackled by something. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells Moshe Rabbeinu, if you want to become Moshe, if you want to become the best version of yourself, it doesn't just mean take off your shoes. It means take off your chains. It means identify in life that which is holding you back and remove it. Remove it. Now, when we say remove it, we'll discuss this in greater depth. Remove it doesn't mean necessarily that it doesn't exist. It might still exist. But make a conscious decision that the things that are wholeheartedly holding you back, holding you back are not going to continue to hold you back. Unshackle yourself from the things which are holding you down. Now let's come back to Megillas Ros. And now we understand the true profundity of this encounter. You have to understand what happens that night in the granary. That night, what happens? Two of the most broken-hearted people in the entire world meet each other in the dead of night. You know, Rus lost everything also. Rus was a princess. She was a Moabite princess. She hailed from royalty. She had anything and everything. And for some reason, she left it all. She converted. She became a Jew. She gets married. Her husband dies. Okay, at least his family has money. Well, the money's gone also. Well, the family has fame. That evaporates also. She comes back to the Jewish community as an outcast. As an outcast. Not actively. Not actively. But ultimately, and someone who still lives on, on the periphery. Someone who wasn't initially embraced into the collective community. Rus was a woman who experienced incredible heartbreak. But the power of Rus was almost like an immeasurable optimism, a hope, a belief that some way, somehow, things are going to be okay. How? I don't know. When? I don't know. You have to understand something. How does Rus spend her days? How does Rus spend her days? How does she spend her days? She's gleaning the fields. She's a pauper. She's a pauper. She goes field to field until Boaz finds her. She says, you don't have to go anywhere else. Just glean in my field. But it's not like Boaz says to her, you know what? Don't worry. You don't have to come collect the wheat. Stay home. I'll send it over to you. He doesn't offer that. She's a pauper. She's a pauper. He, he, he gives her status of a privileged pauper. You could come. But Ruth spends her days, day in and day out, gleaning the fields. And yet, despite having lost her husband, despite having lost her family, despite having lost her life, despite having absolutely zero prospects on the horizon, she maintains a positive disposition. She maintains optimism. She maintains inconquerable hope because she knows that some way, somehow, everything will be okay. So do you know what happens that night in the granary? She sees Boaz. Boaz, broken, broken-hearted Boaz, who sleeps in a granary because he's lost everything, who cannot go ahead and bear the thought of going back into his home because I cannot confront the memories. And what does she do? What does she do? She takes off his shoes. And yes, there's a Yibo message, but there's another profound message as well. What she says through her actions, the words she whispers, not with her mouth, but with her actions, is Boaz. 
You can't live your life sleeping in the granary. You can't live your life moored and mired in the pain of loss. It's true. Your heart will never be fully healed. That's the nature of loss. We like to think that people move on and time heals all wounds. I don't know who made up that phrase, but they're an idiot. Right? It's not true. Right? Time does not heal all wounds. It's unequivocally false. Time allows you to take loss from the frontal lobe and push it a little bit more into the subconscious. But when you live with pain, you live with pain. But Rus says to Boaz, you can't live your life like this. Your pain is immobilizing you. Your pain has shackled you. You're going to spend your life running from the pain. You can't go into your home. You're going to stay in the greenery. This is what we're going to do. This is a life. You put on a brave face during the day when everyone else sees you. But when everyone else goes home and retires back into their family, you can't even walk through the front door. Boaz, you have to learn to live with your pain. You have to let it stop immobilizing you and paralyzing you. Your pain, your overwhelming pain, is the chains around your feet that are holding you back. When she takes off his shoes, what she's communicating to him is together we can move past this. Together, we both know heartache. We both know tremendous and overwhelming loss. We both know what it feels like to have a heart that is shattered into a million pieces. But Boaz, I know how to live with hope. I know how to compartmentalize my pain and figure out how to move forward. And I can help you do the same. Don't lose yourself on the floor of the greenery. Don't allow yourself to be immobilized by the difficulty of your circumstances. Take off your shoes, take off your chains, and move yourself forward. And here's what's amazing. What's Boaz's reaction? You see, Boaz says nothing to Rus except, you are such a righteous woman. You'll ask yourself, why is she so righteous? What did she do? She snuck into the granary. I mean, again, you think about this. You'd be scared half to death. You're sleeping in the granary. A woman pops out. Right? She lays down, takes off your shoes. What is going on over here? And he says, such a tzadikas. Because do you understand what she did for him? She gave him a new lease on life. She told him, together, we can get back up and we can go into the house. Together, a couple of brokenhearted people, we could rebuild and we could build something beautiful and we could build something magnificent together. And in fact, we know the end of the story they do. Right? They marry, Baruch Hashem, they have a child, the, grand, the grandparents of David HaMelech, the Davidic dynasty, and ultimately again, Rus and Boaz become the parents, not only of the Davidic line, but of the Messianic line as well. A dramatic and overwhelming story. And this perhaps is the message of Megillah's Rus for us on Shavuos. Why do we read this Megillah? So again, Tamim and Hagim says beautifully, because Shavuos is David HaMelech's yard site, Megillah's Rus is David HaMelech's genealogy, we read the Megillah, or on Shavuos, when we received the Torah, we all underwent a conversion. Rus is the most famous Gioras, but perhaps it's something different. You see, Torah, Torah is not just a, a list or a, a, a book of do's and don'ts. Torah is the very key for successful living. The mitzvot we have, the Chesh Baruch who gave us, 
are there to help us actualize our potential. Kishbrach is not interested in regula- just simply regulating our behaviors. He's not simply interested in ordering us around. Kishbrach gives us mitzvahs because each and every mitzvah is somehow allows me to tune in to some aspect of my neshama. But you could perform all 613 mitzvahs. But if you don't learn the art of taking off your shoes, you cannot be successful in life for one simple reason. We all have things which hold us back. All of us. All of us have things which hold us back. I know a lot of you here in this room. We all have things who hold all of us. All of us. I have it. You have it. And the list, we could start today and we could go on through Shavuos with the things that hold us back. Like you mentioned before, relationships, failed dreams, shattered aspirations, insecurities, whole bunch of different things, unrealistic guys, all types of things hold us back. And so often in life, we keep our shoes on. And we keep our shackles on. And so we remain moored and mired in place, unable to progress, unable to self-actualize, unable to become the best version of ourselves. It's like Kodesh Baruch who tells us, on Shavuos, I give you a Torah. And a Torah is the most magnificent gift because yes, Torah is the decoder key for life. Torah is the way that we connect with our Kodesh Baruch Hu, we connect with each other, and most importantly, we connect with ourselves. But Torah is only impactful and effective if you learn to take off your shoes, if you learn to be a Rus, if you learn to unshackle yourself, if you learn to find the courage, because the first step is identifying the things which are holding me back. And that's not easy, because we are so incredibly expert in the art of self-delusion. And if you ask me, what's holding on? Nothing's holding me back, I'm good, I'm good. Really, nothing's holding you back? Not one thing is holding you back. Well, then when you spend a few moments with yourself in a moment of introspection and real honesty, uh, there are a lot of things that are holding me back. So the first step is to find the courage to identify what's shackling me. What are my shoes? What's holding me back? And then to find the real strength to say, you know what? I'm taking off my shoes. I'm taking off my shoes. You know, it's interesting that in life, sometimes you have to have the courage to put on your shoes and go out and accomplish. But it takes even more courage to take off your shoes. It takes even more courage to unshackle yourself from the things which are holding you back in order that you can become the best version of yourself. This is the message of Nikilastros. Unless you think that, okay, nice idea, but it doesn't work. That's the entire essence of the story. Rus was who she was because she took off her shoes. And the, the impact she has on Boaz is because she helped him take off his shoes as well. And only because people had the courage to take off their shoes and take off their shackles was there a David Melech Yisrael. David Melech. And only because people had the courage to take off their shoes and unshackle themselves will the Emir Tzashem be a Melech HaMashiach, will it be Messianic redemption. Only because of the courage of people like Rus and Boaz, people who have the courage to unshackle themselves from the things that are holding us back, do they grow, do we grow, does the nation of Israel grow? So we hope that Amir Hashem, that over this Yom Tov of Shavuos, as we celebrate our Matan Torah, as we celebrate again our newfound and re-energized relationship with Torah, we celebrate as we started with 40 minutes ago, as we started with, a little bit more than 40 minutes ago, as we started with, there are two identities we have. We have a collective identity and a personal identity. The collective identity we're going to celebrate on the first day of Shavuos 
when we hear Kriyas Torah, when we hear the Asyaras HaDebros, and we all stand up, re-receiving the Torah together, we'll celebrate the fact that we are part of a magnificent collective. But our, our personal avod on the Yom Tov of Shavuos is to take off our shoes. And Chalish Baruch will give us the courage and the wisdom to identify the things that are holding us back and to finally find the courage to take them off, to let them go, so that in Yerat Hashem we have the ability to move forward. Yashikach Tavon for coming out tonight, wishing everyone a wonderful Yom Tiv. And again, thank you for all of our sponsors. Thank you again to Shani Tapper, to Michal Reitberger. Thank you to our wonderful office staff who helped to put all of this together. Wishing everyone a wonderful Yom Tiv.